0: the book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast shies away from our traditional structure and instead features moderator Pamela Klingerhorn to guide our conversation with author Lindsay Faye. We turn now to Pamela.
1: So, good evening. Thank you all for joining us this evening for Club Book. And we are very pleased to be presenting best selling novelist Lindsay Faye tonight. I am Pamela Klingerhorn. I'm on the board at the Friends of the Excelsior Library, and it is my honor to be in conversation with Lindsay this evening. Club Book is a program of the MELSA, Metropolitan Library Service Agency. It's made possible through the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Library. Before I introduce our guest, I want to take a moment to recognize some of our program partners. Thank you to Common Good Books, over there in the back. He has books for sale. <laughs> we appreciate them coming up in St. Paul to handle the book sales. And thanks always to the media sponsors, Minnesota Public Radio and Minn Post for their promotional support. Our guest tonight, Lindsay Fay, is a fresh voice in the realms of historical and speculative fiction. Her 2009 debut, Dust and Shadow, takes place in Victorian-era England and pits Sherlock Holmes against Jack the Ripper. Fay followed up that success with a three-book Detective Timothy Wilde series set in New York City in the 1840s during the early days of the NYPD and the height of the Tammany Hall political corruption. Both Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews named The Gods of Gotham, the first book in this trilogy, as one of the 10 best crime novels of the year. It also garnered Faye a nomination for the prestigious Edgar Award for Best Novel. Her newest novel, Jane Steele, is an imaginative retelling of Jane Eyre, the beloved classic by Charlotte Bronte. We are absolutely thrilled to be hosting Lindsay Faye just two days after the book's release. This is the third city on her tour, so she's got a very exciting and busy tour. So I'm going to start by asking Lindsay some questions, and then we're going to open it up to questions from all of the audience members. So please join me in welcoming Lindsay (laughs) Fay. Thank you so much for being
2: here, I really appreciate that.
1: Well, Lindsay, you have reimagined one of the most beloved heroines in classic (laughs) literature. Um, Let's take a poll. How many members of the audience have read Jane Eyre? Oh, very good representation. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, that went well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your tribute, Jane Steele, really kicks it up a notch with a high-action heroine for the 21st century. Uh, Would you please talk a little bit about the inspiration for the novel? Yeah, I think uh,
2: it's often uh, difficult for uh, people who write books to pinpoint exactly what the moment of of the inception was, but um, it's fair for me to say that I was rereading Jane Eyre because I love Jane Eyre and it's a marvelous novel and it's a novel that's written from a place of deep pain from Charlotte Bronte and um, and she is an incredible author in any number of ways, and we can probably talk about that uh, in a bit. But I was rereading Jane Eyre, and it occurred to me um, that this child, over and over again, says to adults, no, I'm not morally bad. No, I know I have my own, you know, like, I am a good person, and I refuse to listen to what you have to say about me. And suddenly it occurred to me that that was extremely eccentric, <laughs> because I don't think that very many children uh, feel like that when when they are being told who they are by adults. Uh, I certainly didn't when I was younger, and um, and I respected the novel all the more for that uh, because I think it's very much Charlotte Bronte expressing herself and her own sense of of um, I. I. <laughs> Self-righteousness mm-hmm. is not religion, she uh, famously said in the rebuttal to uh, one of her worst critics, um, which was published in the National Review, and uh, I- in her second edition, she she just publicly said, you're wrong, this is a perfectly <laughs> moral novel. Um, so the concept of it was what if a young child had been told over and over again, uh, you're wicked, you're immoral, you're terrible, you're hell bound. And what if the child, instead of saying um, that she knew to disagree, what if the child said, mm, yeah, mm. I could own that. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> that was that was definitely the concept, um, and I wanted to explore it, and I sent the idea to my agent, and my agent said that seems interesting. Um, I think that I think that your readers would like that from you if it was you know your typically like meticulously researched kind of stuff. So um, so yeah, that was that was the idea, and. Um, And based on that, the rest of it uh, was built on a rubric of Jane Eyre as a novel being sort of flipped on its head. Um, There's not, it's not don't go into the attic, it's don't go into the basement. It's um, uh, when someone's riding a horse and who falls off the horse, it's completely different. (laughs) so yes, I just I, I switched a lot of things. Great.
1: Well, one of the ads that I keep seeing for your version, Jane Steele, is that this is Jane Eyre as a serial killer. Now, do you see that purely as uh, exciting marketing, or is that really how you want your character to be interpreted? I think
2: that that's the perfect question because I think that's how I initially sort of pitched it: was that it was Jane Eyre as a serial killer, and and I. Completely um, agree with everyone who uh, just listened to me and said yes, this is the idea. However, she's she's not. Um, she's she's much more of a vigilante. She's a she's Batman. <laughs> you know? She's a lady Batman. And um, I've also been asked by people whether or not they think that it is a. Um, problematic thing for me to have written a woman who has decided that a number of terrible people throughout the novel should be dead Um, (laughs) as opposed to when men sort of do it in detective novels and and from Chandler you know like on down um, there's all kinds of people who end up dead at the hands of male detectives and is she going to be treated differently I think so yes Yes, that's absolutely true, but at the same time, um, a number of you probably have read the Sherlock Holmes mysteries in this room. Show of hands. Yeah, <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> so so uh, we have a Sherlockian friend, his name is Billy Fields, and he says that in the South there's a phrase, uh, he needed killin'. <laughs> So uh Jane Steele generally is killing people who needed killing. Um I don't know that anybody I I don't personally condone uh murder. I I don't I, I don't think I don't think anyone here does. Maybe John Bergquist does, because he always looks John, John looks a little murdery to me, like all the time when I see him. But um other than John, I think <laughs> I think that most people here, we don't condone murder, but, but how far can you push the question? So, so if there's a refugee camp, and there's a child who's being serially abused by one of the guards at a refugee camp, is the mother of that child justified in killing that guard? If it's not the mother of the child, is she justified in killing that guard? How many degrees of separation do you need to make it in order for somebody to say that actually is okay, as opposed to no, this is deeply and definitely wrong? So uh, I don't provide a lot of answers in my books, I just ask a lot of questions that I find very interesting and difficult. And uh, if it makes people think about them, and think about people who have made very difficult choices if it, in another way, then, then I'm proud of that.
1: And it will definitely keep the reader turning those pages <laughs> to find out. <laughs> so, There's a um, lot of people who needed Killen and Jane Yes, <laughs> that, that's, that's very true, very true indeed. Well, I loved how your character, Jane Steele, reads and references Jane Eyre throughout the novel. So would you talk to us a little bit about how your Jane sees herself through the filter of the novel Jane Eyre and how you handled all of that when you were crafting this novel?
2: So when I first conceived of it, I really wanted it to be a a reflection of the original Jane Eyre, right? With, um, With all of the tropes. But Jane Eyre is not unique completely by accident Nicholas Nickleby is the identical novel with a male narrator and jokes because (laughs) because Charles Dickens liked jokes and Charlotte Bronte didn't care for jokes quite as much so you have you have these people who are it's it's completely representative of Victorian England at the time right you have children who are terribly treated Um, If they are in a poor economic situation and uh, people to this day continue to make the mistaken assumption that people are poor because they deserve it and I'm here to tell you that they're not because I couldn't afford to buy books when I was. A child and I didn't have a a job because I was six but you know I got them from the library so God bless these institutions but um, it's a pastiche of the Victorian novel more than it is a retelling of Jane Eyre so it is deeply influenced by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle deeply influenced by um, by Dickens um, You'll notice the names. I'm sure we're going to talk about the
1: names. The names are great,
2: <laughs> but um, but it's also um, it's also a way that I have of expressing myself when I feel terrible about um, about politics now, and I almost always do this. Um, it's it's unfortunate that the tone of our political scene, no matter which side of it you're on, um, is so vitriolic at the moment, but a lot of bad arguments have been made in the same structure over and over and over again throughout history and I could stand on a soapbox and I could yell about it and nobody would care, but I instead write historical fiction about it, and occasionally people look at it and they say, wait a second, uh, that sounds kind of familiar to something that I just saw (laughs) like two seconds ago. And I do that very deliberately. So um, at the same time that it is a pastiche in the terms of, uh, of a, you know, sort of, one of the versions of the word pastiche means a quilt, almost, like a, like a patchwork of, of things that you've put together. So it's a patchwork of Victorian melodrama and angst and gothic, you know, sort of awesomeness. But it also is about things that make me very angry, and the rest of my fiction
1: is like that, too. Right. Well, we mentioned the names of some of your supporting characters, my favorite being Vesalius Munt. Is that a great name or what? (laughs) But it was fun to see how Jane Eyre influenced the creation of many of your supporting characters. What other classic literature influences your writing? I know you mentioned Nicholas Mm Nickleby.
2: Yeah, so Dickens and Doyle, definitely. um, To a huge extent. Wilkie Collins, for sure. Um, Poe. I grew up on these things. And and it's interesting because I used to... um, I used to be slightly afraid of uh, of writing male characters who uh, express their emotions very uh, passionately. And um, previous to Jane Steele, I wrote a trilogy starring a gentleman called Timothy Wilde, who uh, has a lot of feelings. And then uh, w- before I I embarked on those books, I. Reread all of the Shakespeare I've always been obsessed with and I'm like Hamlet doesn't shut up about his feelings for like an entire play <laughs> and it's not and that's not a play that's that's like ignored <laughs> it is performed very frequently so I you know decided that um, that that was okay and uh, and yeah there's there's a lot of influences there's all kinds of there's all kinds of heroic literature and and uh, you know Ger- I was obsessed with J.R.R. Tolkien when I was a kid um, but I'm always the most interested in in books that explore self-sacrifice and courage and those are those are the most important things to me as a writer because they're the most important things to me as a person so um, when you say, who influences you, I think the only mm-hmm. phrase that expresses it is, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. He doesn't know how to get there. But he's going to do it anyway. And I think most of you understand that reference. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's beautiful. And it's never going to stop being beautiful. And I just try to continue to write characters who are willing to do things that are not
1: just for them. Well, Jane Steele certainly is the epitome of courage and courageous behavior. Um, you have you described it even as a feminist novel. Yes. Would you want to talk about using the term feminist? Yes,
2: definitely. <laughs> so. Um, well, first of all, a definition for feminism for me is uh, uh, we would like to be treated the same equally um, and possibly eventually even make the same amount of money, although I don't know that that's as important as not being attacked in um, all sorts of contexts. I don't personally understand women who don't self-identify as feminists and I respect their right to do so. So first of all, if you're a woman and you don't self-identify as a feminist, great. But you know what? You didn't get to vote like, mm, not all that long ago. About a hundred years. And because of people who are feminists, you can. So I completely respect people who don't want to use a particular moniker, and that's fine. But at the same time, I get to drive a car if I want to. And if I lived somewhere else in the world, I wouldn't be able to drive a car. so to me, it's very simple, and it's just a sort of basic question of do you think that women are people uh. <laughs> so george r r r r r. r martin <laughs> 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 like ours in, sh- in there like <laughs> j r r r r r r tolkien <laughs> um R. martin said uh and I'm massively paraphrasing here, but I've been quoting it um, a lot, because it it means a lot to me. Somebody asked him how he managed to write such great female characters, and he said, massively paraphrasing again, he said, well, I've always thought of women as people, (laughs) so uh, it wasn't that hard. And. And I think that's great, and that's one of the things that I've done with my male characters, to be honest with you, because it's really not difficult for me to access my male characters at all. My male characters are people, and I identify with them, and a lot of them have a lot to do with me and my life and my, you know, experiences and all of that. So, yeah, feminist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I noticed that a lot of your male characters use really pro-female dialogue, especially coming from the Sikh characters. Um, Part of the book involves the East India Company and um, a whole cast of Sikh characters that come to Thornfield Hall. (laughs) And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about whether that was really a product of the time, or more your interpretation of how the Sikhs would Sikh culture. Women. Sikh culture had extremely
2: strong women. Uh Jindan Jindankar, Jin uh who was the mother of the acting regent, uh who he was essentially um the he was the king, theoretically, but um but his he he was very young, so his mother was actually running the country. Um no, Sikh Sikh culture was Incredibly, if you if you look at it politically, feminist, um, we haven't had a female president yet. Um, even Britain's gotten that far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, this was this was um, this was very. It, what, it, it, part of it was out of necessity, of course. And and often that happens in terms of just uh, Regency and royal blood and et cetera. But but yeah, the Sikh culture was extremely feminist so far as I can tell, because every Sikh um, man is a lion and every Sikh female is a princess, and that is how they adopt their last names, if they want to adopt their last names that way. They don't always have to in the modern era. Um, but every single one of them are princesses, if they want to be. And it also is completia- it, it's completely non-racially motivated. So I- it was a religion that was based on the fact that, uh, that Guru Nanak was looking in the 15th century at the fact that there were so many conflicts between um, people of different castes in India which he found revolting because the caste system obviously we, uh, we don't need to make an argument for the caste system this is a very bad system and then um, he also was looking at the fights between Hindus and Muslims in India and he said there is no Hindu, there is no Muslim There is only one God and everybody can be Sikh. This is a new thing, join. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm laughing, but it was amazing because they were slaughtered wholesale so many times in the history of their culture and it's very serious. And it is a fascinating culture because they have always been about human strength and decency in the face of, of terrible hardship and and very bad things happening to them. And um, the loss of the empire was the result of the fact that the royal family and the army had combined together to make an absolutely incredible warrior culture because they kept getting killed all the time. And it was for a very specific reason. like. It was a bloodbath every, you know, um, 50 years. So they turned into a culture of warriors. And then, if you've made a culture of warriors, what do you, what do you do with your army? If your army is just a standing army, well, America's been asking that question for a while. So if you have a very powerful army, what do you what do you ultimately do with it? Um, and they were annihilated by the East India Company, um, and by extension the, you know, British Empire. But the Sikh culture was very important to me when I was researching it, because the idea that anyone can be Sikh, a- and it's so funny because I live in New York City, so I recently saw a redheaded. I swear to God he was Scottish, Sikh dude but he was Sikh because he had the he had the (laughs) wrapped turban and he had a beard because it's also part of the culture that you that you grow out your um your facial hair um and that you don't cut it and and it was so i don't know rewarding to me to see that somebody who's i don't know he was for sure, Scottish, <laughs> but, but he was a Sikh, and that and that religion it welcomes all of the people of all of the cultures um, in a way that I think um, not all religions do. And it, Christianity, theoretically, you can be absolutely anybody and convert to Christianity. That's great. You can convert to any number of other religions without having an ethnic background in that particular practice, that's great too. Sikhism was based on that. It was based on, we don't need to hurt each other any longer, and we shouldn't. And then it was fascinating because it was also fabulous because they were rich beyond measure because they had all these stores of indigo and spices and like. well diamonds, crazy amounts of diamonds. So the koh i diamond, which is a very famous, large stone that is part of the crown jewels, was given, given, to the British Empire um, after the East India Company took over the Punjab. Um, it was, it's part of, you know, like Queen Victoria wore it. So, you know, there are, endless things about that culture that are
1: fascinating. and Did you do your research actually in India, or all in front of the computer?
2: <laughs> it was in front of the computer, but it was based on Sikh scholarship. So like, I, I found three different Sikh scholars who, um, who knew a lot about it, and I read their stuff first. And then second, I read a good chunk of their holy book, but I didn't read all of it, and I have to um, confess to that because it's Fifteen hundred pages long.
1: Oh, you're excused.
2: <laughs> and um, so I didn't read all of it, but I read a good chunk. And uh, and then I read things that were written by contemporary British people uh, regarding the battles. And regarding the battles, they were extremely sp- specific because British historians were hired to um, to report on what had actually happened. Okay. So mm-hmm. I used that as
1: well. Interesting. Well, next month, I don't know if all of you Bronte fans know this, marks the 200th anniversary of Charlotte Bronte's birthday. And there has been such a rush of Bronte fever with all the publishing houses. And of course, Jane Steele is first and foremost among those. <laughs> but what do you attribute this incredible enduring uh, popularity of Bronte's work? Here it is 200 years later, and she's just as popular, if not more so.
2: God, that's such a great question. I think it's got a lot to do with She wrote something that was absolutely uniquely herself. And I think that people recognize that when they read it. It's so, every single sentence is is stamped her. And I lived this, and I own this, and I know what this is like, and I have complete control of this topic because I did it. And I think that authenticity resonates no matter who you are um, and no matter what book you're writing. Uh, Hemingway wrote very, very feelingly of terrible situations in World War I, and he was there, and he was jilted, and he wrote about it in a beautiful fashion but I think that if if he hadn't if he hadn't done that and if he hadn't um, existed through it if he hadn't lived some aspect of it um, it wouldn't sound the same and I think that the reason people still read Jane Eyre is because that's what Charlotte Bronte's life would have looked like if she had become a governess to a brooding, Byronic, stupidly handsome, and kind of sympathetic man-child. <laughs> so, um, so I completely understand the the way it, you
1: know it resonates still. But y- your Mr. Rochester also is kicked up into high octane <laughs> with Charles Thornfield. My Mr. <laughs> Rochester.
2: Yeah, is um, is a combination of of the aspects of Rochester that you already have from the book, but, but also um, certain portions of, of Mr. Rochester uh, I don't particularly care for as an adult that I didn't notice when I was a kid, you
1: know? Um, I always felt sorry for Jane at the end because she was stuck with him. He was so morose. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> He's morose, and, and he... And he says, you know, uh, he says terrible things at certain points in the book, and, and you don't really want him to, but he does. Um, you know, if you, if you won't talk to me, I'll try violence, that sort of thing. So uh, if, if I were Jane, me, myself, now, I, I would run. <laughs> But um, but Mr. Rochester is also highly sympathetic because of the fact that he's been through quite a few things. So um, I think text from Jane Eyre really ex- expresses it the best, because he always, in text from Jane Eyre, he, he always texts in all caps, right? <laughs> and he's like, is this about my attic wife? <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's definitely about your attic wife. Like, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Charles Thornfield, um, as a character, I was basing him more off of um, well, that veered in a or Arthur Conan Doyle direction. He's an army doctor. He's an army doctor who suffered a great deal, and and I flipped a lot of things on their head. Like I said earlier, with uh, with Jane Steele versus Jane Eyre, and and. Rochester is openly sort of scornful about his ward, and Charles Thornfield loves the little girl that he takes care of, and she's precious to him, and she's his daughter. Like, that's a, that's a thing that it was very important to writing the character, because um, he would do anything for that little girl. And I don't know if Rochester would do anything for his ward, I, th- I think probably not. <laughs> but, um, but that was one of the ways that I changed the character deliberately because I wanted to make him somebody that I thought was worthy of um, Jane Steele falling in love with him as opposed to somebody who was not. So he cares about children and he Yes, he has a dark past, and it, yes, it has changed him, but, but it hasn't necessarily changed him um, into someone irredeemable or cynical
1: about the rest of the human race. That parental love for Shazaro really shines through, and that character you did an excellent job with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Steele is your first female narrator out of your That's five great. novels. How? did that experience differ for you from writing your detective Timothy Wilde in the Gods of Gotham trilogy?
2: This is always the best question because of the fact that it most differed for me um, in the sense that people are confused by it. (laughs) And you're not confused by it at all. because we talked about this before (laughs) and I know you're not. We practiced. We practiced. Um, It it is it is mainly to do with the fact that uh, that I for the other characters I didn't have a lot of choice so I was writing about um, Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper and I was writing in as close to the style of John Watson as I could possibly manage and um, that obviously means John Watson is your narrator, right? So that's a gimme. I then wanted to write Day 1, Cop 1 of the NYPD, and unfortunately that's not going to be a lady. Um, they weren't around as cops in 1845, and I think that there are a lot of strongly f- feminist characters in the Timothy Wilde series, But I also think that I was able to see things through Timothy's brain that allowed me to express some stuff about about how men tend to view women that might even have been more interesting (laughs) than if I had written a female character as a protagonist and I couldn't have, I really couldn't have because I, I wanted it to be the very first police officer so it had to be a man. Um, And that turned into a trilogy, and I'm very grateful for that, and it's wonderful. Writing Jane has been great for me, but it hasn't been any different. And I don't have any sort of... um, (laughs) I'm not a zero on the Kinsey scale, but I'm I'm also not a person who thinks that there is a tremendous difference between, um, between people of, of different genders, and, and that has absolutely nothing to do with like what you identify as, w- whether or not you're wrongly identified, I mean like, God no, all of those things are, are horrifying circumstances. However, for me, I've always just sort of thought of characters as extensions of the way I feel about the world, and the way I feel about other people, and they're not very difficult for me to access, and it's not that hard for me to access a a male character as opposed to a female character, because I think that we all have feelings, (laughs) and, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, uh, are there different ways of expressing them? Yeah, definitely. Do I make different choices about what Jane cares about than what Timothy cares about? Yes, absolutely I do. Um, Timothy, Timothy cares about certain facts about New York City and historical streets that, uh, that Jane would never care about in London, and Jane cares about certain aspects of really pretty
1: dresses that I also care about, and so that's fun too. Well, we know that you're a self-described fashionista, so you really got a chance to give us a lot of richly detailed...
2: I never got to talk about dresses before. I know,
1: here you go. So where did you do all this wonderful research? Pinterest. Uh, Pinterest.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I did a lot of it on Pinterest.
1: Not the Victorian Albert. No. 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 <laughs> But inter- it is interesting
2: to me, genuinely, because of the fact that, like, it's not, it's not clear cut what makes people, um... Gender differences are a lot to do with culture, at the same time that they're a lot to do with what is actually invested in you genetically. And so much of it is culture. And we were talking earlier about the fact that I think that it's very interesting that if I talk to a room full of people, so many people, who are female, have read Jane Eyre. And it is a great book. It's marvelous, and I admire it so much. So few men that I've had conversations with, meaningful conversations with, about literature, have read Jane Eyre. Now, how many men have I had conversations with about the fact that I'm obsessed with Ernest Hemingway? I am, and A Clean Well Lighted Place is my favorite short story, probably apart from mm, one of five Sherlock Holmes mysteries, <laughs> but, but A Clean Well Lighted Place is really up there, and I love Ernest Hemingway, but when I was growing up, it was totally okay for me to read those books, and it was not okay for little dudes to be handed The Island of the Blue Dolphins. Why? Because The Island of Blue Dolphins is just a good book. There's no reason that a little dude wouldn't like it. It's actually just awesome. So the gender discrepancies I find very interesting at this point and sort of inexplicable. So I would ask you to explain it to me because I don't know. (laughs) I don't have any answer for it.
1: We're coming to the end of our time, uh, and the audience is going to get to ask some questions. But I thought you might like to give an overview of some of your other work besides Jane Steele, so that after everyone in the audience rushes out and reads it, they will know what other titles they should go and ask for if they want to read more Lindsay Faye. They do, do, I know. So maybe you want to give a little teaser about those. Mm -hmm. So Yonder is a really
2: handsome dude. That's Sam from Common Good Sam. Books. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Selling some books. And, um, and my, my first novel is Dust and Shadow, which is based on the fact that I've wanted to be John Watson since I was 10 years old. And I first read the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. And I have never been more angry than I was when I got, I don't read all of my Amazon reviews. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> but I read an Amazon review. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But I did read one that was for dust and shadow when i was young and foolish and it was from a person who said well she wrote this sexy prostitute into it so that must be her putting herself into the book and i was like how dare you i've wanted to be john watson since i was 10. So i was like look no further than the eye narrator for the self-insertion in this (laughs) novel because I am a hundred percent John Watson Um, and then I wrote the Timothy Wilde trilogy which is about day one cop one of the NYPD and I always say day one cop one because it's literally (laughs) the first police officer and it is the intersection of the founding of the police force which accidentally happened the same year as the Irish potato famine landed on New York shores.
1: I learned so, so much in that book. It was amazing. Did you?
2: Yes. <laughs> so did I. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I. I did too. I bet you did. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was cool.
2: Uh, and, and people have said, Lindsay, how did you come up with the first cop plus the year the Irish potato famine happened and I'm like, I didn't come up with it. It (laughs) happened. Um, And then there's the sequel to it, which is essentially the reverse version of um, 12 Years a Slave, which is about the people who are trying to prevent the kidnap of uh, free blacks from New York being sold like Solomon Northrup was um, tragically lost a lot of his life. Um, And then there's The Fatal Flame, which just came, uh, no, it's coming out in paperback in like two weeks, I think. Um, So the third book in the trilogy is about the very first Manufactory Girls, long before Triangle Shirtwaist, and long before that tragedy happened, and about them just uh, sort of, the mystery revolves around them. There's an arsonist at work, but there's also women who are going to work for the first time and they're living alone and it's crazy and everyone's losing it because they're not living with their dad, they're not living with their husband, they're not living with their brother, they're living in a a boarding house and they're going to work in a factory and they spend their money like they want and it's crazy to everyone who's watching it. Um, So that's the third one in the trilogy and and then Jane Steele just came out. I think
1: two days ago. Where am I? It's on Tuesday. Where am I? It's Thursday. Yes, you're in (laughs) Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) If it's Thursday, it must be Minneapolis.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Lindsay Fay and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Faye was at all concerned that loyal Jane Eyre fans would not like her new spin on the classic story.
2: No, I wasn't worried about that at all and I continue not to be worried about it because I am a rabid Jane Eyre fan. So I'm so rabid about Jane Eyre that I was never worried about it at all because it was written out of a place of love. It wasn't written out of a place of, of, you know, I'm going to try to do a thing for the... I didn't even know it was going to be the 200th birthday. The 200th birthday thing? Okay, I didn't know that. That was my publisher who came up with like, wait a second, it's, you know, like the 200th birthday, theoretically, of Charlotte Brown. I did not know. I just wanted to write this book. And no, I was never worried about it. And thank you for asking that question because of the fact that I love that book so much that it was just about loving the book. So every chapter starts with an excerpt from Jane and Eyre. And I, I took the parts of it that I thought were most important to the narrative I was trying to make, which, by the way, is not... A sort of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies thing. It's its own narrative. It's its own narrative, and it's its own protagonist, and it's its own people, and it's its own characters. So it's it's not something even if you, even if you love Jane Eyre and you have, I don't know, deep reservations about it. It's not the same characters, and they're not being sort of like transported into another version of themselves, it's completely different people. And there are people who are reading the novel who really appreciate the novel. So that part I wasn't actually nervous about um, in any way, just because I'm a giant fan girl.
0: Our next question is how Faye finds inspiration and keeps her focus during the research process of her novels.
2: My cardinal rule of writing historical fiction is that uh, the narrator never makes commentary on something that she or he doesn't care about. Um, So, I could know all of it, but if it ends up in the book it has to be something that's important to the narrator. I also make a distinction between what I call brickwork and what I call architectural studies. So, um, this is actually much briefer than it sounds. I need to know the entire architecture of a world before I can write about it effectively. I need to know how the politics work, I need to know how racism works, I need to know how sexism works, I need to know how everything works in this particular world. I need to know what it smells like, I need to know what it sounds like, I need to research the entire architecture of the structure, right? But the bricks are the part that I put in the book. So the bricks are the things that the narrator cares about and if the narrator doesn't care about particular bricks then the bricks don't make it into the book. I know about them because I'm trying to make the world accurate. The bricks only make it in when the narrator is emotionally invested. So I think that's the best way I can answer that question but that's that's a hard and fast rule
0: another audience member wonders what lindsay faye's reaction is to the recent renditions and portrayals of sherlock holmes in tv series and movies
1: thank you for
2: asking a question about my favorite person who never lived and thus will never die <laughs> um okay so i haven't seen the bbc biopic yet. It's something that I have like as a reward for myself very shortly. Um, I did, uh, as Baker Street Babes Media, see um, the Ian McKellen Sherlock Holmes twice before I was supposed to, and both times I was just completely obsessed by how awesome it was. Um, it, it's beautiful. Um, Mr. Holmes is is gorgeous. Um, it is based on a novel called A Slight Trick of the Mind by a gentleman uh, whose name is Mitch McCullen. Our podcast also did an interview with Mitch McCullen and that interview I think is very interesting because the novel takes certain turns towards the end that do not happen in the film version. But Mitch McCullen was writing um, again from a very personal place and it's it's one of the reasons it's so beautiful so the idea of Sherlock Holmes and his mind him starting to lose his faculty his remarkable faculty and and his memory and his ability to make deductions and to notice things and to recall them is absolutely horrifying to anyone who viscerally loves the character like he's a real person, which I have for a very long time. So he, um, (laughs) Mitch McCullen was writing this based on his own experience with his father. Um, So the novel is from a place of of great tragic truth, which I think is um, it's just remarkable how honest he was about about it but he channeled it into a story about Sherlock Holmes and I think that is often what authors do is to take things that are very painful to themselves personally and then channel it into an imaginary person so that they can express it but Mr. Holmes if you haven't seen it yet is completely fabulous and it is it's gorgeous. It's stunningly pretty. And Serena McKellen, I don't know. Like, I'd tap that.
1: <laughs> Speaking of all these He's great so actors, much. you have an acting background yourself. I do. And how does that affect your writing career?
2: Mostly to do with, uh, with imitating yeah. accents and voices. <laughs> because I'm trained in about six different British accents, so uh, I can imitate them better. And I'm also trained in about three different southern accents, because my my cousin, my cousin from Nashville, she talks in this like rapid fire. (laughs) Like like her southern accent is completely different, Um, because she talks so quickly from the slow Georgia southern accent that I, you know, um, experience when I'm down south in that region, but it's, it's just, I, I think linguistics are fascinating and I think the English language is beautiful and I'm also kind of obsessed with English, so there's a lot of slang you'll find in most of my books um, that has to do with the fact that I just think language is, is very interesting and the way we adapt it and the way, how many here, how many people here know the origin of the word okay? Do you know what it stands for? Because it's actually an acronym. So in the year 1838, um, somebody for an East Coast newspaper, I think it was somewhere in Boston, I can't, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, I can't remember exactly where. I think it was Boston. Um, Somebody wrote a parody article about how slang was taking over the English, language and about how upset they were about it. And it was, um, it was trying to be deeply insulting, but it was uh, imitating ways that people pronounce things at the same time that it also was imitating ways people were starting to abbreviate things. So, it abbreviated, all correct, o l l, k e r r. ECT, all correct, which is how you would have said it, all correct, into OK, and it turned into a language virus because of the fact that no more efficient way of saying OK had ever been invented. So people used it first for shipping because they would check the contents of a package or or a crate that was being put on a ship, and they would say, "Okay, all correct. But it is based on a misspelling of a deliberate misspelling of all correct, and it is an acronym. So if you want to spell it right, it's capital O, capital K.
0: This audience member asks if any of Fay's works have been adapted into films.
2: I have to confess something to you, um, which is the fact that um, one of my books is being made into a movie, and, uh, and it's that one. So uh, so when I, when I get to Los Angeles, I'm supposed to meet with um, Chris Columbus's 1492 Pictures to talk about. Yes, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Well, And it doesn't mean that they're actually going to make it. It just means that they've optioned it. But they have optioned it, and they are highly motivated, and they very much want to hang out with me. So I have, I have some, some hopes for it.
0: Our last question of the night is whether Faye has any favorite reworkings of Jane Eyre, not including her own.
2: Well, you know, I have to give—I have to give so much respect to Wide Sargasso Sea, except for the fact that it makes you want to slit your wrist the right way, you know, <laughs> like it's so sad. It's like the worst, um, and it's a beautiful novel. Like it's so well done. Um, I love it. I love it. It's it's gorgeous. I find it hilarious. Well, okay, so so there is one version that I think uh, I enjoy just because of the fact that it's so funny, but. Uh, Mr. Rochester and Jane are both supposed to be, in, in the novel, Jane Eyre, unattractive, right? Like, theoretically, because it's said a kajillion, bajillion times. And then there's the Timothy Dalton version. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Because Timothy Dalton is so ugly. He played James Bond. That's how ugly he was. Um, so that's silly. There's a graphic novel version of Jane Eyre that I quite like, that I have, but I can't remember who did the art for it. I feel terrible about that. Um, and I've been to Charlotte Bronte's house, and that was very cool because uh, a friend of mine is the former curator of the Bronte Museum there, and um, they have a lot of, of products that are, that are just beautiful adaptations and different covers and all of that kind of thing and one of my best friends um, when I started working on my next book sent me a blank book that on the cover says Jane Eyre and it's a beautiful Jane Eyre cover but it's actually blank pages and so now I'm using that for research so I like that too Um, yeah so there's a number there's a number of Jane Eyre things that I enjoy she should have an action figure, though. <laughs> if she doesn't, I mean, like, if she has an action figure, someone please send me the link, and, if, and like, otherwise I'll just, you know, like, request it. You'll That's have to happens.
1: create that for Jane Steele. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Thank you all so much for joining us this evening, and we will see you at the next <laughs> Club Book Session.
0: That wraps up our Ridgedale Library event with Lindsay Fay in Hennepin County. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Jacqueline Mitchell at 6.30 p.m. Tuesday, April 5th, at Carver County's Chanhassen Public Library. Jacqueline Mitchell is the author of 10 novels to date. Her debut, The Deep End of the Ocean, propelled the author to superstar status after Oprah Winfrey chose it as the inaugural selection for her wildly popular book club. Mitchell's newest, Two If By Sea, hit shelves in March, 2016. Meet Jacqueline Mitchard, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made two. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.